0: Welcome to Unconcluded. I'm Sean Gerd. As Scott and I sat down mm, some two months ago, we were mapping out our path forward. We kept going back to where we've been. Back to the roundabout, back to those church woods, and back to the Huntington on the Green, and even the Mosaic. Still trying to make sense of all of those things. And in this episode, we're going to revisit some of it. More as an exercise and if our thinking has changed at all. Recently, we spent a lot of our time diving back into these old rabbit holes of Jennifer Cassie's disappearance. And it wasn't just a way to keep all the details fresh, but also to look back with the information that we have now as a bit of a different lens. So we're doing that today, but over the last several weeks, we've gone back to our files from the beginning, to our old audio recordings, and all the other information that we put together To take another look and ask different questions of ourselves, to be more skeptical, more deliberate, just in general, more thorough in all of it. For those of you who haven't kept up with maybe the local news out of Orlando, let's quickly catch up on the state of the actual investigation, or at least what we know of it. Prior to last episode, we talked about how the Kessies had received the documents from OPD. To date, they put that number somewhere near 14,000 pages and hours of video. Drew and Joyce have also recently made statements to the media that while they found no bombshells or smoking guns, they had information to work through. They've also made mention that they're still operating from a theory of a construction worker or the like being involved. Nothing much has changed on that front as far as we know. The Kessies private investigators are still working diligently on those files and their investigation. And the Kessies themselves continue to try to fund the ongoing expenses associated with this work. They recently participated in a fundraiser, and they continue to accept donations on their GoFundMe account. They've raised about fifty thousand dollars to date. Many of you have contributed, and I know how appreciative they are for that support. The unfortunate reality is that the costs continue to exceed those funds. A recent Bay News Nine article quoted Drew as saying that OBD had agreed to work sixteen hours a week and turning over the files, passing them along every couple weeks. But it seems like there has continued to be some frustrations. So with that update, let's take a minute to talk about our sponsor for this episode, and then we can get into our thoughts on things from the past. Did you know that as many as 9 out of 10 Americans don't eat enough fruits and vegetables? Kenko aims to change that with a 100% organic instant smoothie that delivers two of your recommended five daily servings. Using advanced freeze-dry technology, Kenko captures all the goodness and nutrition of organic fruits and vegetables, including the fiber. They don't add sugars or preservatives, and there's no need to freeze or blend. Just shake with water or milk and your smoothie is good to go. There's nine functional flavors, but my favorite has to be the Golds, which is full of protein and made with cacao and goji berries. I just mix it with some cold water and it's ready to go. There's nothing like the convenience of getting two servings of fruit and vegetables when you're on the go. It's easy to travel with and you can bring it to work or on vacation or really wherever you're going. One of my favorite things is how easy it is to save time and that there's no annoying cleanup of a blender. It's just trusted organic ingredients and a sustainable package that is great for people like me that just find it hard to get lots of fruits and veggies into my diet. Kinko Instant Smoothies come direct to your door on a flexible subscription plan with free standard delivery. You can customize your flavor selection for each box, and the first one includes a free shaker bottle. Each smoothie costs less than $3, and first-time customers will get 10% off their first order when they subscribe by visiting kinko.com. That's K-E-N-C-K-O dot com and using promo code UNCONCLUDED at checkout. Again, visit Kenco.com, K-E-N-C-K-O dot com and use the promo code UNCONCLUDED at checkout. So after the news broke of the news search last episode, Scott and I have been spending some sleepless nights on the internet combing over the various Jennifer Kessie-related locations on the web. The family Facebook page and group, the guestbook, Reddit, web Sleuths, along with the unconcluded pages and groups as well. You name it, we've been looking at it. And one of the reasons that we like to do this every so often is to get a sense of what people are thinking, what theories are being generated, misinformation that may be out there, and probably most important, the perspectives on things that are from different points of view than our own. Now, sometimes these aren't worth our time. For example, in the Kessie's own Facebook page, a recent thread was started that more or less accused Drew Kessie of being responsible for Jennifer's disappearance. No evidence, just speculative reasoning, and honestly, I don't even remember what it was at the moment. Why someone would feel compelled to even go down that route, with no evidence, is beyond me. I mean, hasn't this family been through enough? Anyone with half a brain can see that they didn't have anything to do with it and that their lives have been completely decimated by this tragedy. And it's sad that those kinds of things are even posted, let alone the fact that the family has to then read the nonsense. Why is it that people feel compelled to make these kinds of accusations? It just boggles my mind. I could probably go on for a two-hour rant about the people that try to stir up drama in these kinds of cases, as if there isn't enough already for these families to be concerned with. Real people subjected to real terror and people just want to make it a game. There's nothing more frustrating or sad. But I'm going to force myself to move on and get into some of the things that have come up as Scott and I have traveled the black holes of the internet, even if it's for the sake of discussion, because many of them bring forward valid thoughts and ideas. One of those topics for discussion continues to revolve around the issue of the phones. Both Jennifer's phone and that of a friend of her brother's who'd spent the previous weekend at Jen's condo while she was away. There's rampant speculation and even arguments among armchair detectives, people claiming inside information, and just general followers of the case. The question is, when did Jen's phone lose power? And what about the friend's phone? Did it happen at the same time? Or separately? An old interview from 2006 appears to show the friend claiming that Jennifer had told him. He had missed calls, and she'd be overnighting it to him. But then another person claims knowledge that this phone had lost power before Jen even returned to her condo. It's really just a mess of conflicting information and assumptions, and I don't really know what we can take out of it. Remember, we talked to Joyce Cussie early in our investigation, and she had never been told what time the phone, or phones, had lost power. But then Drew remembered being told a time of 10.40pm the night of January 23rd. So here we are, more than two years later, and it's still a hot debate. That doesn't even mention the idea of Jennifer leaving her condo that night to mail back the phone, which most people close to her believe she wouldn't have done. And at the end of it all, we end up back at square one. Now, if you're asking me, I guess I lean toward the idea of Jennifer's phone having its battery removed at 10.40pm, but it's just all so up in the air. And then along with these discussions, we see various theories presented. And it seems like everybody has their own and no two are the same. That's to be expected, really. Theories from a nighttime attack by a coworker to a morning abduction by a construction worker and every combination in between. But some of the most interesting are those that weave in some of the different events that we brought forward were considered here on this podcast. Places like Northbridge Apartments, the Wooded Church Lot, the Jewelry Store, the Huntington on the Green itself. After all this time, it almost feels like an out-of-body experience when we look back at them, almost like I wasn't even the one who was talking to these people. And the more that Scott and I saw these various theories online that incorporated bits and pieces of these events, the more we started thinking back and evaluating our own thoughts on them. And ultimately, I decided to go back and pour over all of the audio that we had, more than 10 hours of audio that we'd recorded just to kind of see if I heard something different and update my own thoughts. I honestly don't even remember some of what I thought over two years ago. My opinions and and thoughts in general have changed, so it seemed like it might be something worth exploring, here with all of you. And that's where we end up today. Let's start with our visit to Deckard, Tennessee from episode 5. Really, this was the first outside information that we presented on the podcast. We heard from a woman who swore she saw Jennifer in a jewelry store.
1: The door rang as someone opened it, and I came from behind the payment counter and walked to the front of the store. It was a very narrow store. There was a very dark black male who was extremely fashionably dressed. He, He stood out in that part of Tennessee, And he was pulling behind him a girl by the wrist. I felt an immediate concern for her welfare because now I'm alone with her and I'm looking at her. I happened to catch on television a story of someone who was named Jennifer Tessie. I was convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt that that girl was Jennifer. I knew that it was her. It looked just like her. And I called the Orlando police to report that I had seen her, but I had seen her in 2006 or 2007 and did not know her name or who she was until I had seen something while staying in Florida. They gave me, they put me on hold, they gave me a phone number for a tip line. I called. I gave my brief synopsis of what I've just gone in some length here with you. And I never heard anything for over a week and a half, and it bothered me. They would given me a password, so I went back to see if there was uh, any interest in in it, I was able to be transferred to a live human being who recited back to me everything I had said in my original tip, and she assured me that the police had the information, and that included my contact information, because I felt like they would need to ask me questions, and no one has ever contacted me.
0: So after listening back, my thoughts haven't changed a whole lot on this one. In the end, I just don't think this was Jennifer. I believe that the witness saw what she saw. I just think that she's mistaken that it was Jennifer. There just isn't enough that adds up. Even still, just this week, someone sent us another photo that they found on Backpage, claiming that it's Jennifer. One look at the photo, and it's not even close. I think sometimes people just see what they want to see. And after the FBI looked into it and considering the actual possibilities of this being a sighting of Jennifer, it's just hard to get behind that. As always, we can't say it's impossible, but it is unlikely enough we really don't reconsider our stance from before that this is not Jennifer and that this is not currently part of our investigation. Now, as we continued our investigation, we also spoke with a woman who lived at Northbridge Apartments in Orlando, just a few blocks away from Jennifer. And if you remember, her story was interesting, to say the least.
2: Just on this random January day, a girl comes walking into the office, and and I asked if I could help her. And so I kind of motioned her to come over to my desk, and she sat down. And I asked her her name, and she said, "My name is Jennifer Kessie." Well, behind me, um, the there were these huge windows. That you could see outside to the entrance of the community and, and all that stuff. As I was talking to her, she wasn't making eye contact with me. She actually was just looking out the window, like if she was looking for someone. And she just, she just was. Her attention span was just somewhere else. But during this time, she, as I continued talking, it's almost like she let me continue to just keep asking her stuff and. She would give these short, you know, answers. She wouldn't really give any detail about anything. I just, I felt like she was in there wasting my time. Like she, she, she came in there and she was just, you know, biding her time about something. I don't know what. So at that moment, um, i I just kept talking to her and I was just, I just kept looking at her and I'm thinking, okay, she's, she's, she's okay. <laughs> I'm just gonna, Give her whatever information she wants, and you're just gonna let her go because, you know, she's just not not really interested. Maybe she's just wanting to, to see something, or just came in here and get some information, and then just go. And I remember when I was sitting, and when I was sitting there, and I was writing her name, I thought, oh, you know, her name sounds like, you know, it's Kessie. What, you know, that that's a a nice last name. Kind of sounds like kisses, or, or you know, whatever. And And that's why her name stuck out to me. That's why it was just like it it was memorable to me because of her last name. And that was several days um, before she actually disappeared. It it had to have been um, some sometime the week before she was abducted, because that's that was the length of time. Wednesday morning, that following week, Wednesday morning, I was getting ready for work. And looking at the, you know, the, the the news, and all of a sudden there's this picture of this girl that basically just, it just pops up on the screen and says, you know, missing. And there's this picture, and it all of a sudden, like, the screen flashes Jennifer Kessie. I just sat there, and I looked at the guest card, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, like, I can't believe it. I I can't believe this girl is missing. She just came in, and she talked to me and i just can't believe that this is her and i remember just some some talking outside like almost like an agitated conversation going on between people between like some people well when i heard this female say P- somebody please help me i immediately just like jumped up and um i ran over to my blinds and i peered through the blinds and i saw this this vehicle sitting like right next to the roundabout there was this guy who takes this blonde-headed girl out of the front seat of this car opens the back door you know and just basically what I could see was there was somebody else in the car but somebody else was sitting in the back seat on the opposite side he puts her in the car and they peel out and take off and at this point like I told my husband I'm going to call the police. I call the police, the police officer comes out, and he takes a statement. The crime line FBI, because they're FBI, would put two and two together and would actually investigate more. Nobody ever asked, nobody ever called, nobody, nothing, nobody ever inquired about it or contacted me just to even ask um, anything further about it.
0: I'm still so bothered by this one maybe the most of any of them. The details make it plausible, but they almost seem to match up too well. The name on the card seems to be over the top. Could be a detail that's fabricated to add relevance to the story. But then at the same time, it doesn't even seem like a story that would be made up. Why would someone do that? And if they were a name card, really? Couldn't they make it more relevant? Remember, we followed up with the authorities and no police report could be located, even though one was claimed to have been made. Now, there are legit reasons why this could be the case, chief among them the amount of time that had passed, but not finding the report didn't help reinforce our belief in this event. So the question becomes, I go to all the effort to make up a story like this, stick to it 10 years later, including calling the police department with me to check on it. And remember also, this person severed communication which raised its own questions. Was it because she was tired of the attacks from others, like she said, or was it because she couldn't keep up with her own story? Like I said, this one is just the most frustrating of all. I desperately want to talk myself out of this one, but there's just something about it that doesn't let me get all the way there. I mean, it is an outrageous story, the men, the car, the name card. I'm a numbers guy, and if you made me put a number on this, I'd say maybe I'm 40% on this one. I just don't know how else to qualify it. The biggest curveball is that she claimed Jen was asking about a condo a week prior to the roundabout event. It just doesn't make any sense. But why in the world would someone even think to make that up? My conversations with her seemed truthful. I didn't get a feeling like we were being played. And trust me, i felt that way with conversations with others. But it's still hard to believe 100%. The name card is probably the biggest piece of the puzzle, really. And had that not been a part of the story, this would probably be easier to believe. We could believe that, you know what, this event probably happened. But maybe the person wasn't Jennifer. Kind of like with the Tennessee account. But we can't do that here. This story includes Jennifer Kessie's name on a freaking card. We either believe this story and that it was Jennifer, Or we believe that the whole thing is a lie. There isn't any middle ground. I guess if I'm forcing myself to take a stance, I'm going to say no, that this isn't Jen. But that's playing the statistics. And I'm not comfortable with it. Like I am, say, the Tennessee one. It scares me to say no here. Because what if? What if? But let's move on to the most disgust of all the coworker and the manager from Jennifer's place of employment at one point earlier in our investigation i was convinced that one of these individuals was involved and then sometime later that the other individual was involved and then even later i was back to neither of them being part of it this week i reconsidered here's a quick refresher in 2010 a complaint was filed against this individual and the information in that complaint was a bombshell. I've obtained a summary of that complaint that I'm gonna read to you now. Just keep in mind that the names involved have been redacted. So I'm going to use the terms the employee and the manager where the redacted names appear in the letter. Also remember that this is a one-sided account, and we have no way of verifying if this actually happened other than this one particular person's complaint. The letter is dated January 19, 2010, and it reads as follows. The employee made an appointment to file a complaint against his supervisor, the manager. During that conversation, he mentioned that the harassment began after the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie. He said that before she disappeared, the manager and Jennifer were involved and that was common knowledge. The employee indicated that Jennifer had gone on a cruise and that the manager was very upset and angry and had told him, I don't know why she's hanging out with that guy. Why did she go with him on a cruise? The employee said that he would tell him not to talk about these things because the manager was a married man. The employee then stated that on Monday, when Jennifer did not come into work, the manager came in very late and everyone noticed. He saw that throughout the week, the manager seemed very preoccupied. When they spoke about Jennifer, the manager told him she must have been eaten by crocodiles by now. The employee told him not to say things like that, and the manager ignored it. The employee said that he did not tell the police about the manager coming in late because he was afraid what happened to Jennifer would happen to him. He stated that he almost had a heart attack when he was called by the police. He thought that perhaps he was being seen as an accomplice because the manager and he used to hang out together at work. I told the employee that he should have mentioned this to the police and also let them know that he feared for his safety. The conversation at this point returned to his complaint, and he did not mention Jennifer Kesey again. The letter is then signed by the person who wrote the letter, whose name is also redacted. These individuals, the coworker and the manager have by most accounts been interviewed extensively by police. And the stories surrounding them are extremely compelling to say the least. And one thing I don't think that we've mentioned on the podcast itself, but have discussed on the social media sites, is that there are Facebook posts made by the coworker on the Kessie's Facebook page. I'll read a few of them to you since they've been deleted. Back in April 2012, the coworker posted, The wonder of the U.S. justice system is, It might take a time to find out what happened, but all those ones who are directly or individually involved in Jennifer's matter will pay. The sad face of it, relatives of these people that are involved will pay too. I encouraged those relatives to speak up and solve this matter now with dignity and not tomorrow with dishonor. That never stops in the search for those whom does not obey and follow the laws. Now it was full of typos and misspellings, but the comment that he encouraged relatives to speak up, that stands out, of course. But is it taken at face value, or is it just another typo, as in I encourage them to, and not that it had already happened? There were also other posts simply saying keep looking, or do not give up, but they had a weird winking emoji included with them. By themselves, they mean nothing, but certainly, they could be interpreted with meaning if you think that this person has involvement, and at the very least, they come across as strange. I said this on the TV show that comes out next year. There is so much that seems to point in their direction, both the coworker and the manager, but I can't help but feeling that we're all looking in the wrong direction. For all the reasons that we don't need to discuss again, the work individuals certainly stay on the list of possibilities for me. But they aren't at the top like they are for a lot of other people. And I don't really have a detailed exact reason for this either, other than I just think some of the other options are more likely. But even that said, it wouldn't surprise me if there was more to this. And hopefully we'll get those answers soon. Now, we also spent some time talking about the wooded lot behind the church on Oak Ridge, which to my knowledge, has still never been searched. Side note here is that Scott and I have renewed our efforts in that area and hope to be able to report back soon. So stay tuned. And if you forgot about that count, here's the quick version.
1: So when you first walk up on it, um, like from the street, which is obviously where I uh, parked over there by the church, it's a lot of grass and fairly high grass. And then there's some trees, but then it gets really dense after that. Like it's, thick thick like you think of sort of florida in florida you know the the with the high grass and um you know it may be swampy back there i'm not sure to be honest i didn't really go uh, venturing too far back into the dense woods but um it gets thick and it's like overgrown and everything so um that that you know that's basically that entire area back there um i think for people to understand that and it looks a lot bigger to me at least being there it looks a lot bigger than what you would see on the map, as far as the area goes. So I think yes, it would be very easy to conceal pretty much anything you'd want to conceal back there.
0: So why are we spending time in these woods? Well, because of a phone call several weeks prior. As
3: far as I can remember, is I lived on Wingate Drive in Orlando, not far from um, Jennifer Kesti. Um One night, I was. Um, my children were little and we don't smoke in the house and I was excited. We were watching movies on cable. I got up to go outside to smoke a cigarette. It was dark. I can't remember the time. I noticed two cars outside. At this point, I didn't know about Jennifer Kessie yet. So I see two cars and one of them spotted me and started flashing his lights into the woods. There's like a church there and behind the church was like the woods. A bunch of trees looked like the woods. But Oakwood, you know, we don't have woods. But anyway, he started flashing his lights, like warning somebody in, in those trees, in the woods. There was two cars there that night. One was Jennifer Cassie's at the time, like I said, I didn't know it was her yet. And then next to her car was another vehicle that I couldn't see because her car first and then the other vehicle was beside her car. And since it was nighttime, I couldn't see. I got a look at the gentleman that was there and he had, a, he was a tall, slim guy with a ponytail. So I took the flyer down and I came home and I told my husband, I said, This is the car that was in the backyard. And he looked at it. So I called the hotline number. And they they didn't really do anything. The following day they sent helicopters out. And that was the last I heard of it about about that. But that was her car. Nobody ever approached me. Nobody my husband at one point told me to mind my business because the guy looked over towards our house. And at the time I had two small, you know, babies. Little ones.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So I I did call the hotline twice after I saw it, but never got a response back or nothing. The guy was tall. He had a ponytail. And he was slim. And there was another person, but never got to look at the other person because he was flashing his lights into the woods like he was warning somebody. There was two cars there that night. Somebody had to have driven the other car. That was Jennifer's car.
0: Now, as I said before the clip, I still think that this is something worth looking into. I mean, that's why we're doing what we can to move this process along. It matches the timing and the location is close to others that are important in this case. In fact, if I had to choose just one thing I'd like to do most, it would be to check out that wooded lot, even if it was just a means to exclude it. There is so much worth considering here, and for what it's worth, I very much believe this individual's story. Now, there's nothing more than the look of a car, the location, and the timing to tie it to involvement with Jennifer. But that timing is everything. And when added to the location and the fact that the car looked like Jennifer's, that adds up to a lot in my book. I just wish we knew more. So here's to those efforts, and here's to hoping that a search will provide some answers soon, even if those answers are that there's nothing there. There's more to this story. And we hope they'll reveal that soon. And we're planning a lot more for the new year on that one, so stay tuned. Now, we also talked to the woman who believes that she saw Jennifer Kessie at the Huntington on the Green after the time of her disappearance.
4: I, let me see, I was working for, you know, for DCS, and that day I got out, out of work early. So I went to the supermarket, and I hardly ever used to be around my parking lot area, because I lived right there on Huntington on the Green where the car was found. So I got home early that day, I was taking out some, you know, bikes out of my trunk, and then I see this girl coming to me, hi, how are you doing, you know, wanting to talk to me and all that stuff, and then she was with a guy, and then the guy, like, rushed her off, you know, so, you know, since she left, you know, I ignored her, said hello, and I kept on walking, but then I remember the face, and I remember the look, like, you know, the look he gave her because she wanted to talk to me, you know, but they left her going, and I went, and then the next morning... You know, I hear in the, I'm watching the news, they said that she was missing, and then I remember, you know, I remember, you know, that conversation. I didn't remember that one, you know, I knew something had happened, but then about a week later or so, I said, wait a minute, I remember that, you know, seeing that girl. I remember seeing that girl, and that happened, that was like around, I think that was like around 3.15, you know, between 3 and 3.30, because I had gotten out of work early that day. And then when I put the information on the, you know, on the, on, the, on the Internet, you know, I didn't get any callbacks or anything like that. And then a couple of years, you know, later now, just recently that I was at UCF, and I told her about, you know, what I had seen. And, she, you know, she told me, oh, no, it was a um, – they had found out that it was some type of a prostitute or something that lived in the area. But I always thought it was weird because I had never seen that uh, there before, and I've been living here since 2001. You know, and then she told me, oh, that, you know, she told me, I told her my my information. And then later Mm -hmm. on, she said that she spoke to somebody and they said that it was a prostitute from the area. Like, you know, so she said that they didn't think it was her. I just left it like that.
0: Now, this one, much like the Tennessee account, I'm to the point where I think it's mistaken identity. We know there was an individual who looked similar to Jennifer that was in the area during this time. And her day-to-day interactions would fit this particular account much better. In addition, the timing of this just doesn't really add up at all, let alone the actions of this individual not really matching up with Jennifer herself. There just isn't anything about it that supports us being tied to Jennifer other than the location being the Huntington on the green and the person saying that it looked like her. So for us, we're just not considering it relevant at this time, and we'll leave it at that. Now finally, I don't want to forget about the bizarre Facebook post that had a person apologizing to the Kessies. A person with a criminal background and close ties to the areas of Jennifer's disappearance. Even possible shared associates with the co-worker, which is weird itself. The rabbit hole on this one, it goes deep. At the bottom of this lengthy post was Jennifer Kessie's name. It was amongst a bunch of other stuff, but it was a statement saying, I apologize to Jennifer Kessie's parents. Why would someone need to apologize to Jennifer Kessie's parents? Not hard to imagine the first thoughts that popped into my head, and certainly the thoughts that were already running through Scott's. This was strange. And within the context of the rest of the post, it could, and let's emphasize the word could here, it could be interpreted as a confession of sorts.
5: Yeah, so um so I'm from the area that she came up missing from, you know, Oak Ridge John Young area, Texas Ave, uh, Americana and um me and my wife were sitting there the other night and I was going through my Facebook and I seen a post from him and it was saying, you know, all this different stuff, all these names and her name had came up. Jennifer Cassie. So I was like, Well, that's pretty weird. So I screen it because I knew that, you know, Eventually, he would probably erase it, but, um, well, he was deported probably like a year ago because, I guess, he had shot some other person and some a bunch of stuff had happened. He did robberies and all kinds of stuff, so he had got deported, and I never knew his real name, you know, as long as I've known him. I've known him since I was like 10 years old, and um, we kind of we got into like a beef with him, you know, over some things. And my, he had ended up shooting one of my friends. Probably about a year ago, he had requested me on Facebook. And I didn't recognize the name, but I recognized the face. So I, uh, so I got him on Facebook, and then that thing had came up. So I went ahead and, uh, I went ahead and, uh, screenshotted it and stuff. He's originally from Texas Ave, Rio Grande, uh, Americana, John Young area. And that's where she came out missing from. So um, yeah, like where she came up missing around the same area, you know. So um, you know, I was just I figured I'd just get it out there, you know, because I thought it was pretty weird.
0: The problem here is that the ties to Jennifer are very thin, just a few words in a Facebook post, but the background of this person and the locations that they were known to be adds some support to these thoughts this is probably the hardest one of all to really dig into because the person has been out of the country. Now, police and immigration and customs enforcement have looked into it as far as I know. And at this time, that's all we can really rely on, that they did their job. There isn't much further that we can go with it. We've tried. So while it's interesting, it just kind of sits there with no real path. So I don't think it's something that we can focus on right now because we just don't have anything along with it, but it's also something that we can't forget about because those coincidences, well, I've told you before, I don't really like coincidences. And looking back at some of these areas, specifically the roundabout encounter, the coworker situation, and the church, we're continuing to focus on these events. In all three of these areas, we are working in various ways to go deeper. We've also become aware of additional individuals who seem worthy of a closer look, including that which we spoke about in the last episode. But it would be dangerously irresponsible to even attempt to detail thoughts in that direction at this time. So, all of this has led to where we are, somewhere and nowhere, all at once. Still questioning everything and realizing just how frustrating those 13 years must be for the family. So, maybe this episode is just an exercise in talking it out. But let's end with this. What is my current working theory? Now, I'm forcing myself to do this here, but we'll go with this. And maybe it's not a theory, but more of a clarification of some thinking. Based on everything I think I know, which would be the facts, but also things that I think are likely, my current opinion is that Jennifer was likely killed on the night of January 23rd, 2006, sometime after her phone conversation with her boyfriend had ended. I do not think that it happened in or around her condo. Nor do I think it happened in her car. While it's possible that she was intercepted between her condo and car, I think it's more likely that she drove her car somewhere, and the crime happened at that location. The coworker or manager still seem like a possible suspect here, but I'm not really willing to say one way or the other. I think the perpetrator spent the night of the 23rd and the morning of the 24th disposing of a body and personal items, and then had the car moved to the Huntington-on-the- Green once finished. I don't think that the POI is the person that is responsible for what happened to Jennifer, but I do think that they hold answers. Now, I'm speaking in a lot of generalities here, but it does narrow the time frame for me. And maybe tomorrow I change my mind again. But one of the things that drives me crazy and throws a wrench into everything I said previously is the dogs tracking the scent back to the mosaic at millennia. I just can't get my head around that based on the rest of my thinking. And it seems to be one of the keys to the entire thing. Now, is that track completely accurate? We can assume that it is, but why? Why walk there? It drives me crazy. The only reasons that make sense have us back to the worker suspects or actually the lake suspect from last episode as well. But then those suspects don't add up for other reasons. It doesn't all reconcile. And that's what makes this so hard. I'm going to stop here. I think maybe my takeaway from this episode is that this frustration is real and I can't imagine those who have lived with it for 13 plus years. As always, thank you for listening and participating. The Kessie Family GoFundMe is still open if you feel compelled and I know every dollar counts. If you think you may know something about the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie, the time to come forward is right now. We will see you next time in the new year. Music in this episode by PC3.